Hello and welcome back to the third episode of the self-hosted web.org podcast. My name is Richard Hemmer. To everyone who's new to this, in this podcast I talk about software you can install on your own server as an alternative to the hosted services you'd usually use. The last two episodes I talked about Cloudron, a self-hosting platform, and about Nextcloud, a very full-featured remote storage solution. Go and have a listen, in case you haven't yet. And in case you're wondering about the soothing sound of waves crashing against a pebbly beach, that was just my way of explaining why it took so long for me to release this third episode. It was summer, I went to the beach, and then I went to Scotland. But I'm back, so let's get on with the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about something that's both a blessing and a pain, but really the most fundamental thing for everyone using the internet. Email. You might be thinking, why should I want to even care about email? It's on the way out. We've got messengers, social media with direct messaging capabilities, etc. And you're not totally wrong. While email isn't really as popular as it used to be, Especially with the younger crowd, it's still one of the cornerstones of online communication. It's ubiquitous, it's a unique identifier, and it's used by just about every service you want to sign up for. Email may be the dinosaur among online communication services, but it is the blood that flows in the veins of online communication. Well, dinosaur blood. And since it is such an important cornerstone, it warrants a look at what options we have when wanting to host our own email servers. Most people, me included, have used web-based email for years, decades even. First there was Hotmail, where I had my first email address ever. Then came Gmail and, for some unlucky souls, even Yahoo Mail. And while way back when Gmail started and people got upset over the fact that Google scanned emails so they were able to show relevant ads, people have for a long time simply ignored the fact that their online communication was basically hosted on someone else's server. Only with the revelations of Edward Snowden have some people started to look into this closer and realize that some things should change. But change is difficult. And it's especially difficult when it comes to setting up your very own mail server. Things like encryption, spam protection or server validation so your mail isn't automatically designated as spam by every other mail server out there. These are things even hardened veterans of self-hosting bristle at the thought of. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is something like mail in a box or short MyAB. What is MyAB? Well, as you can guess, I will not be the one explaining that to you. Instead, I'll just let Josh Tauberer, the inventor and maintainer of MyAB talk. My name is Joshua Tauber, and uh, I, um, uh, I'm a software developer and an entrepreneur. Um, so by day, I split my time between projects that are uh, about government transparency and um, an open government in the United States uh, and other software development consulting. Um, and then uh, on the side, uh, as a hobby, uh, I created Mail in a Box. And if you're now expecting to hear what Mail in a Box is, you will have to wait a tiny bit longer. Because 
Even though I already talked about why people would want to set up their own mail server, I asked Josh what his rationale was for creating Mail in a Box. Well, it was shortly after the Edward Snowden um, revelations, and people were starting to talk about email security and who owns the pipes of communication. Um, and I had been running my own mail server for um, at least a decade around that point, and I thought I um, I could help other people do the same. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to make a, a particularly big statement about it, um, but it was something people were interested in and it was some expertise that I had. And that, that's, that's basically where it began. And now, finally, here's Josh's explanation. What exactly Mail in a Box is and how it works. Mail in a Box is a way for you to set up your own mail server. Uh, which means coming off of something like Gmail or Yahoo um, so that you can uh, receive and send mail uh, using your own um, equipment in a way, um, although your equipment would be in the cloud somewhere, um, but at least you have a little bit more control over it than you would uh, if you were just using a prepackaged service. Um, and Mailbox is basically a system configuration project. So uh, we didn't write very much new software. Um, it's, it's sort of an automated um, it's an it's a script. Uh, it's a really long script um, that just pulls in standard Ubuntu packages um, that uh, are relevant for sending and receiving mail, um, and then a little bit of work to help with DNS uh, configuration because DNS is um, very important for um, reliable mail delivery. Um, and, and so you, you run the script, and it sets up uh, your server, uh, pulling in the packages. Um, and gives you some instructions for how to do DNS, and it'll actually do your DNS for you, uh, and then you're good to go. Uh, and it, it uses um, standard standard packages, so Postfix for an SMTP server, and Dovecot for an IMAP server, um, Spam Assassin uh, for spam filtering. We include uh, Roundcube, which is a webmail front end. So you can, when you you can go to your box's web address slash mail, and uh, and you can see your mail that way. Um, and through SMTP and, and IMAP, you can use any mail client like your phone or um, Mozilla Thunderbird or or even Gmail, actually. So there you have it. Mail in a box is basically a very quick and painless way of setting up your own mail server. No fiddling with any configuration, no DNS setups, etc. Let me give you a quick overview of what you'll need to use Mail in a Box. First of all, you will need a domain name to attach your email address to. I've covered domain names in the previous episodes, but basically you pick one you like, see if it's available and then register it via services like Gandhi.com. There are cheaper ones out there, but again, don't skimp on your domain registrars because you'll need support at some point and the cheaper ones usually lack good support. Anyway, Mail in a Box works better with some top-level domains than others. They have a list of those in their setup guide, so make sure to check that out at mailinabox.email slash guide.html before registering your domain. Next, you will need your own box or server. Mail in a Box recommends getting one at services like Linode or DigitalOcean. A word of warning, once you install Mail in a Box on this box, you won't be able to use it for anything else. This box will be your Mail in a Box and nothing else. So if you've got a VPS with your website or some other self-hosted services running, this will not be the one you'll be using for Mail in a Box. 
Anyway, with these two things, your domain name and your server or box, you can start setting up mail in a box. I've just mentioned their setup guide and this will be the place for you to read carefully. It instructs you on what to do with your virtual private server, your DNS setup, etc. It also contains the information to actually install it, which is basically logging into your machine via the command line and then issuing a single command. Everything else will then be done via the script. Your mail server should be running. Now, that sounds pretty easy, and the fact that it is betrays the immensely complicated procedures that will be going on under the hood while mail in a box is being installed. So I asked Tosh why it is so difficult to set up your own mail server. Email was invented a long time ago, and in the intervening time, it's gotten more complicated um, in order to be secure and uh, to fight spam um, and to provide um, mechanisms for uh, you know that surround that. So, for instance, SPF and DKIM are DNA are protocols that sit on top of DNS for specifying who's permitted to send mail using a domain that you own, and this is. Um, able to help the receiver determine if it was you who sent the mail or uh, a spammer who illegitimately used your domain. Um, and so there, th these are complicated protocols. Um, DKIM is based on uh, encryption. Uh, and so in order to implement that, you've got to set up uh, encryption properly. Um, and there, there are you know, standard packages for doing this, but they have to be configured correctly. And on top of it, if you want mail to be transmitted securely encrypted, uh, with with TLS between servers, between between your mail client and the mail server, and between your mail server and the recipient's mail server, that all has to be configured correctly. And uh, it is not easy to configure TLS correctly, especially because every six months there's um, some revelation that a cipher or even the whole protocol uh, has has a problem that you have to. Uh, you have to change your configuration for. So staying on top of all of these things and getting the settings correct. Um, you know, it's not something. It's not something you can you can really just learn um, easily uh, on your own. And having a an open source project like Mailbox, where everything is documented and um, uh, and explained, at least to some extent, uh, the best I could, um, it's it's you know makes it possible to learn what's going on and set it up and uh, get it correct. So. Mail in a box is quite the amazing tool to facilitate the setting up of these rather complex configurations. A thing I should mention here is that while mail in a box seems to be the most popular solution at the moment, there are quite a few other projects that tackle the same problem. Some of them are even mentioned on the mail in a box website as well. They all have their advantages and disadvantages, though. Some are designed for larger organizations, others are designed in a way that lets you tweak settings to no end. From my perspective, mail in a box is ideal not for the power users, but for those looking into hosting their own mail without much hassle and not too much potential to wreck the whole setup. Now, now this wouldn't be the self-hosted web podcast if I didn't ask Josh about his view on self-hosting in general. Yeah, self-hosting is it's a choice that you have to make, and you have to take into consideration um, factors that um, you know how how much time do you have to maintain your server when things go wrong. Um, in a mailbox, <clears throat> the setup tries to minimize the cases where things are going to go wrong, but things are going to go wrong. Uh, and uh, uh, how important is it to you to self-host versus how important is it for you to know that your your email is secure? Um, so, for instance, it. 
for some notion of security, it's very likely that Gmail is just more secure than than a mail in a box you set up. Now, it depends on what you're what you mean by secure, right? Like Gmail has access, Google has access to it, of course, right? But if that's not a threat you're worried about, then then Gmail is going to be a better secure um, solution for you because they have security engineers and you don't, right? So um, there are a lot of there are a lot of considerations like that. Um, uh, you know, Mail in a Box has not received a proper audit for security from a security professional. Um, uh, so a lot of reasons why not to do it. I think the, the main reason that I care about for doing it is that if you are a technology professional um, or you are really interested in technology and security, then this is a way to help you actually learn how this all works. Um, you know, if you want to be a Google engineer, a security engineer at Google later on in life, a good way to get there would be to start by running your own mail server and learn what the technologies are. And if the only way that that we could learn about the technology was to already be at Google, that would be bad, right? We need ways for people to understand the technology that we have in our world. Um, and if and that's and that's part of what's important to me about about mail in a box. And if that's important to you, then that would be a reason to use it as well. I find this a very interesting approach to the whole self-hosting topic. To see it not only as a way to regain control over your data and communication, but also as a way to learn the basics about how the internet actually works. One other interesting thing. While Josh has developed a tool that helps you run your own mail server, he's not dogmatic about using self-hosted services at all. How do I know that? Because I asked him which other self-hosted services, apart from Mail in a Box, he uses. It's hard to even remember because uh, they're so much more seamlessly integrated with my life than my own Mail in a Box. Um, I'm, lo I'm looking at my browser window that's open. I have TweetDeck, Slack, Facebook, uh, and, a, and my calendar, which is hosted by my Mail in a Box, open. Uh, so three quarters, apparently, of the things that I have generally open uh, are, are hosted services. And you know what? I think it's time for me to confess to using a whole lot of hosted services as well. I think in a thread on Reddit, someone wrote it would be interesting to hear what setup I myself am using. Are all the services I use self-hosted? Well, far from it. First of all, I still use Facebook and Twitter. I also use Dropbox for a few projects and my calendar as well as my photos are hosted by Google. I do use a bunch of services that are self-hosted though. All my blogs, of which there actually are quite a few, my really late service called Wallabag, my feed reader, which is fresh RSS, Nextcloud for most of the files I want to keep synchronized to the cloud, and Piwik for my website statistics. But even here I'm not totally consistent because I still use a fair bit of Google Analytics on some of my websites. Also, technically, the statistics for most of my WordPress blogs are actually hosted by WordPress.com, so if I were to be strict, I'd have to turn those off too. Also, I have to admit that I have not yet found a good replacement for Evernote. I've been using Evernote since 2008, and even though I'm hugely frustrated with their lack of a Linux client and having to resort to using the subpar web client, it's just impossible to find something that's as frictionless and feature-rich as Evernote. And finally, in a twist that might shock you considering this episode is about a service that allows you to set up your own email server, even my email is hosted. It's not as bad as it sounds, though. I managed to wean myself off of Gmail, which I'd been using for the last 10 years or so, and created an account with ProtonMail. 
ProtonMail is special because even though it might be hosted, it encrypts all your mail on the server and it has its headquarters in Switzerland, which is one of those countries with privacy laws that favor privacy-centric services like ProtonMail. And if you're corresponding with other users of ProtonMail, all your mail is automatically encrypted in transit as well. As a special feature, you can also send temporary mail and mail that is encrypted and can be decrypted with a password. When I talked to Josh, I asked him what he thinks about services that are hosted but offer end-to-end -end encryption. I don't, I don't have a good answer because since I use my own, I've never tried the others. Um, uh, I, my, my general feeling on a lot of those things is that it's, of course, hard to know who you can trust and whether they've implemented things correctly. And then on top of it, like whether whether end to end, you know, is even just it's it's hard it's hard for individuals to to evaluate their own risks and you know what their attack vectors are. So yes, especially when it comes to encryption, it is important to look at why you're doing it. I for myself opted for a service that encrypts my mails simply because it's an easy option that in its current implementation works just fine. Search might not work as well as it does with Gmail, but that's something I can live with, considering the upside of having my mail fairly securely locked away from prying eyes. Now, we are nearing the end of this episode, so as it has become the custom, I ask Josh where he sees the future of self-hosting. Well, I, I mean, I, I think hosted services are fine and good in a lot of cases. You know, it, it doesn't make sense to have a lot of Twitters um, and uh, I, I think there's still there's a lot of room for growth for self-hosting. Um, I, I know from the folks that have tried Mail in a Box that they've enjoyed learning about how mail works and uh, how to set up technology. And I think there's a lot of more people out there that uh, would want to try their hand at kind of uh, disconnecting a little bit from the rest of the web and um, and taking over some part for themselves for their own for their own needs. So I definitely think there's a lot of room to grow. I don't think that this is going to be something that everybody is just going to have one day. Um, it's just not, it, it's, it's inefficient. It's less secure for most people to try it. Um, there are a lot of reasons why it's not, probably not um, a sort of mass consumer thing. I, I actually, I'll, I'll add though, you know, on the other hand, there's, there's a middle ground, right? Um, I, and I forgot, this is another thing that I, that I try and keep in mind with mail in a box. You know, if, there should also be competition. So even at the level of the hosted services, there, there are, you know, I don't know, something like five big ones like Gmail. Um, and then there are a bunch of second tier um, services that are hosted, but you have a bit of a more uh, emotional relationship with them and you might trust them to be better in some way because it may be worse at others. But in order to have competition, you again, you need to you need to figure out how the infrastructure is supposed to work. You know, you can't you can't have competition if the only people who know how to set up a mail server are the big five. Uh, so I think I think it's I, I don't expect self-hosting to be mass consumer. But what could be mass consumer is that the second tier adopts uh, ad adopts the self-hosting techniques and, and commercializes it. So you know there could be a, a corporate sponsor of mail in a box that provides uh, a hosted service. You know I think Josh has a point there. While I don't fully agree with this notion that it wouldn't make sense not to have a lot of Twitters, considering how it's now possible to federate various installations of Twitter alternatives like GNU Social or Mastodon, 
I see how self-hosting might never fully move from niche status to mass adoption. Instead, smaller players can start looking at the reasons why people have the desire to self-host and create their services in accordance with these desires. That's exactly why we have services like the earlier mentioned ProtonMail. Again, and I guess by now this is a bit of a red thread weaving through all these episodes, self-hosting is all about choice. About choice and about the ability to make informed decisions on which services to use and which services not to use. For people to decide for themselves whether they want to spend a bit more time on setting up and maintaining their services or whether they want to go the middle route, where many issues they have with hosted services are addressed, but they still don't need to set everything up themselves. In the end, this is not just about making your online lives more secure and more private, but also about doing it in a way that's still comfortable enough to not be utterly frustrating. And this, I think, is a good point to end this episode of the Self-Hosted Web Podcast. Thanks again to Josh Tauberer for taking the time to talk about Mail in a Box and his view on things. The music is by Poddington Bear via freemusicarchive.org under an attribution non-commercial 3.0 international license. If you have any suggestions on what to talk about in my next episodes, feedback about this episode or just general feedback about the format, don't hesitate to drop me a note at richard at selfhostedweb.org. Oh, and if you generally enjoy podcasts and do know some German or want to learn it, I'm also one half of the history podcast Zeitsprung, which you can find wherever you usually find your podcasts or directly on zeitsprung.fm. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Music